South Australia is already leading the nation. Today we lead the world. We're announcing the world's largest lithium-ion battery. That battery uh, will be built uh, in Jamestown, just a few hours uh, from the centre of Adelaide. It will be a partnership between Tesla and also Neoen. That's the Premier of South Australia, Jay Wetherill, in early July. He was announcing that Tesla, run by moonshot regular Elon Musk, had been selected to build the world's largest lithium-ion battery. A grid-scale battery that will provide stabilisation services to the grid, also opening up new possibilities for renewable energy uh, in this state, in this nation, and around the world to be dispatchable. Welcome to Moonshot, the show exploring the world's biggest ideas and the people making them happen. I'm Christopher Lawson. And I'm Andrew Moon. And in this episode of Moonshot, we're exploring the future of how we power our world, and specifically the future of how energy is both created and stored. Yes, as the world looks to combat climate change and invest in clean energy, we're looking at how technology will help us harness that dream of one day having a world completely powered by renewables. Just over a year ago, on a Wednesday evening, a storm lashed South Australia with winds so powerful they knocked over more than 20 high-voltage transmission towers. This caused a blackout which plunged the entire state into darkness. South Australia is in the dark tonight, with power out across the state. Extreme weather has damaged critical parts of the electricity network. While the blackout was due to the damaged transmission towers, at the time it sparked debate about the condition of South Australia's power grid, with many federal politicians, including the Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, raising concerns over the state's high reliance on renewable power. There is no doubt that a, uh, a heavy reliance on intermittent renewables, by which in South Australia we're mostly talking about wind, but there's also solar, but intermittent renewables, does place very uh, different strains and pressures on a grid than reliance on traditional baseload power, whether it is uh, fossil fuel or, of course, hydro. Now, I want to say, make this point. Energy security should always be the key priority. If you are stuck in an elevator, if the lights won't go on, if your fridge is thawing out, everything the fridge is thawing out because the power is gone, you are not going to be concerned about the particular source of that power. The massive South Australia power failure on the 28th of September 2016 wasn't the first major blackout in the state, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. A few months later in February of this year, in the middle of a heat wave that saw temperatures reach 41 degrees Celsius, that's 105 Fahrenheit for those playing in America, 
Parts of the state once again found themselves without power, right when they needed it. This time though, the blackouts were deliberate. SA Power Network says it's been instructed to begin load shedding because of a lack of available generation. South Australia is home to just 1.7 million people and now has more than 50% of their state's energy generation coming from renewable energy, a target they weren't expected to hit until 2025. It's also a state that often sees high summer temperatures. And when there's hot weather, people switch on their air conditioning, which places significantly more pressure on the network. And this time, South Australia just didn't have the available capacity. Now, Australia has what's called a national energy market. And that market is controlled by the Australian Energy Market Operator. They look at where the power is needed and shift it in real time between states to help keep the grid stable. But in February, they just couldn't get enough power into South Australia and the state wasn't able to generate enough power themselves. So the national operator forced a series of rolling blackouts to reduce demand on the network. South Australia is a, is a small state it's, it's, and, um, and their demand is therefore relatively small. That's Ariel Liebman. He's Deputy Director of the Monash Energy Materials and Systems Institute at Monash University. The problem, he says, has to do with what happens when old power stations go out of service. The economics of energy production um, dictate that uh, the kind of power stations that go into any system are always the same size. So when you retire a, um, an ageing power station that can't make any money, it takes a big amount of capacity out of that system. And uh, that would be okay if the ability to import from other parts of Australia to into South Australia, i.e. from Victoria, would have been large. But it's not that large. That interconnector was deemed to be economically optimal of a certain size. So that, that connector was sort of too small to uh, sustain that, that gap? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's hard to know exactly how you would have foreseen that that uh, range of uh, events in a way that that could have uh, prevented this there's still the jury's still out there's some some analysis suggests that with the, if the protection settings were set correctly then this wouldn't have happened um, but not a lot of analysis uh, really that, that that's conclusive to, to my mind it's 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 quite a tricky thing to to analyze Despite the difficulty in predicting these mega blackouts that South Australia's experienced, the state has been determined to shore up its energy supply without reducing their investment in renewables. And the plan that they're going with, as you heard at the top of the show, involves a really, really big battery. This is going to be the largest battery installation in the world by a significant margin. Um, the, the, this is a 100 megawatt uh, battery installation, the next biggest battery uh, system in the world is 30 megawatts. So we're talking about something that is more than three times as powerful as the next biggest battery installation in the world. Tesla beat out more than 90 other bids to win this mega battery contract. And the company's involvement in solving South Australia's energy crisis largely stemmed from a conversation on Twitter between Elon Musk and Australia's Mike Cannon-Brooks. A few months ago, I was up late at night with one of my kids and I saw something on Twitter about Tesla saying that they could solve South Australia's rolling series of power crises with one of their large industrial batteries. Now, without thinking, I fired off a bunch of tweets, challenging them and saying, were they really serious about this? And in doing so, I managed to kick a kind of a very small rock off a very big hill. 
that turned into an avalanche that I found myself tumbling in the middle of. This is Mike Cannonbrook speaking at a TEDx event in Sydney earlier this year. A few hours later, Elon tweeted me back and said that they were deadly serious. That within 100 days of contract signing, they could install a 100 megawatt hour facility, which is a giant battery on a world-class size, one of the biggest ever made in the planet. And that's when all hell really broke loose. Um, and we've, we actually insisted in, writing, in, in doing the contract that, um, that we be held to the 100 days where it's free. Because that's what we said publicly, that's what we're going to do. I'd also like to, to thank Mike Cannon Brooks for um, <laughs> talking smack with me on Twitter um, and, and kind of getting, getting that. Um, I think he deserves, deserves some credits there as well. The South Australian battery is not far from being complete. And if it's not done in time, it will be free. But what good can a battery system actually do for a whole power grid? Well, batteries are good for balancing generation that you can't otherwise control, like wind farms or solar farms, right? They follow the weather. That's Ariel Liebman again. To provide more um, available and reliable or really controllable output, you, you can use batteries. So when the, um, when the, for example, the output of the wind farms is very high, perhaps... Uh, so high that it's you know really isn't needed. It's displacing some uh, otherwise very cheap um, fossil fuel generation, and then you you might be better off actually storing it, both economically and therefore you've got additional capacity from the battery to deliver that when it's economically um, more uh, more valuable when when the um, the demand is really high and, and the wind production is low or, or just not huge. And then the other stations that would otherwise be running would be very expensive ones. So that's when you would use that battery to feed that energy back in the grid. As we've mentioned many times on this podcast, Tesla and the company's fearless leader do not shy away from upending or opening up new markets. In this case, the company is right now in the process of building a massive factory in Nevada, largely dedicated to making just one thing, batteries. Because when you think about it, all the products that Tesla produces, from cars to power walls, require efficient, powerful batteries. So Tesla is trying to improve the manufacturing process so they can keep up with this growing consumer demand. Tesla's current battery technology is largely focused on the lithium-ion battery. Lithium-ion batteries are what's used in everything from your phone to South Australia's new battery farm. But if we're looking at the future of energy, we need to look at the future of battery technology. And one of the keys to that future is the creation of entirely new types of batteries. One area of focus right now is on what's called a lithium air battery. The technology will have a significantly higher energy density than today's current lithium ion batteries, meaning you'll get a lot more power for the same size. This is the holy grail of lithium battery research. And although the minds working away on this have been experimenting with different implementations of the idea, they're still a while away from getting these batteries to work well enough that they could be installed in your next car. So scientists are looking at different materials that could potentially be used in place of lithium and present a better, more efficient option in the future. And one of these options is actually based on hydrogen. So uh, my name is Anasa Mohamed. I'm the CEO and co-founder of H2Go Power. And H2Go Power, we're developing energy storage systems that stores the excess renewable energy in the form of hydrogen. Um as a clean and powerful fuel. So uh, the issue with renewable energy is that 
it is intermittent. The sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day and the wind doesn't blow 24 hours a day. Uh, it only works for uh, a certain number of, uh, of hours uh, every day and you can only use a certain amount of it. You can't use, you can't consume the entire amount of energy produced from renewables all at once. Uh, so the ideal solution would be to produce whatever energy that you're not using, that's what we call excess uh, at the same time. Uh, and when you can when you can store it, then you can use it when you're not able to generate energy. Uh, and that provides you with round-the-clock power without having to, uh, you know, suffer from any blackouts or shortcomings. How does this compare to, say, uh, you know, like a lithium-ion uh, battery solution? So uh, that's a very good comparison. Lithium-ion batteries uh, uh, are energy storage devices that you can basically store power in and get power out at the other side. Uh, our technology that we're developing works exactly the same in terms of power in, power out. Uh, the difference is, is what exactly is inside uh, the material and uh, the reason why we're developing technology like this when you have lithium-ion batteries is that it comes to solve problems or technical limitations of lithium-ion batteries. So lithium-ion batteries, for example, they have storage capacity limitations. Uh, they cannot store energy for long periods like four to six hours would be the limitations. Um, so what do you do when you need more than that? Uh, when you scale them up, when you're working at large scale, uh, if you want to uh, power a hospital, for example, on a battery, uh, that battery becomes very heavy and extremely expensive. Uh, and the technology that we are developing that uses hydrogen, um, it, it comes to solve all these problems. So basically, we convert the gas into a solid state and we store it as as solid state so it can be safe instead of pressurizing gas uh, up to using high pressures uh, into uh, cylinders. We we have developed a technology where we can basically convert the gas state into a solid state. uh, And then when we want to release it, we convert it back to a gas state. Uh, again, so it can be used in fuel cells or uh, uh, burned if you want to use it for grid applications. What what sort of uh, like the timeline for uh, for this technology? When like what when do you see this being at a state where you could start rolling it out? Uh, you know, a, a, as an energy storage solution. Um, so that's a really good question, um, and it's very it's very important to clarify that. When you're developing hardware complex technologies like this and you're not, you're starting from scratch or from very initial, uh, you know, from literally the beginning, it takes a long time to develop technology. So we founded the company officially in 2014. And at the moment, we have the patent pending for materials. We have um, a working prototype, and at the moment we're designing a pilot that we hope to build and test by the end of 2019. Uh, these, these are the plans, and after the pilot, uh, there will be a few more pilots in different places in the world, uh, and a few years down the line from that point, 
uh, we would anticipate that we can go to production mode. Um, that, that is the plan. Now, hydrogen has a reputation as being quite dangerous. Hydrogen gas can be combustible in the presence of oxygen. And this is one of the complexities with designing hydrogen fuel cell technologies, storing the hydrogen in a way that's safe. However, Anas says that actually hydrogen technology can be safe, and the way they're storing it in a solid state actually reduces a lot of the perceived risks. So I, I work a lot on hydrogen, and the, 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 the most surprising thing uh, was the people perception uh, around hydrogen. Uh, there is, it is, it is widely, uh, it is very common that people think that hydrogen is very dangerous. You can't use it, uh, so you can put it in your car. You can use it. I mean, people were always associated with a hydrogen bomb, uh, and uh, people don't don't make the same association with batteries, which, which I think, I mean, they could be dangerous. They could explode, but we engineer them safely, and equally, uh, we engineer. Uh, hydrogen technology uh, uh, safely as well. But the perception uh, is not there yet. And uh, I think it is one of the things that we need to to educate people more about that it's another solution. We engineer it safely so we can uh, use it. People know how to uh, uh, send uh, rockets to space very safely and, and get them back nowadays. Uh, and uh, engineering has taken us, uh, you know, to the moon and back. We know how to engineer uh, uh, batteries safely, and we know how to engineer hydrogen um, uh, technology safely. And speaking of ideas that have a dangerous reputation, we'll be looking further at another technology that involves hydrogen right after this break. Now, before the break, we were talking with the NASA Abahamut from H2GO Power about their method of storing energy using solid-state hydrogen batteries. NASA's plan is to focus their efforts on providing this technology to the developing world in countries that don't currently have a stable electricity supply. A lot of the power that's stored will be generated by renewable energy, which at the moment is largely delivered from wind farm, solar power, hydro and geothermal. But there's a significant amount of time and investment going into another source of clean power that has the potential to completely change our energy future, and that is nuclear fusion. All right, so g'day, I'm Alex Thorman and I'm a PhD student at the Australian National University working on fusion power. Basically what we're doing is research into generating clean energy through the same process that occurs in the sun here on Earth and our, our group at the Australian National University specialises in um, measuring the light from these machines to... Um, to get a picture of what's happening inside these devices. If I'm someone that, that doesn't know anything about, about nuclear energy, what is fusion? All right, so fusion is the same process that occurs in the sun, and it's different to nuclear fission, so fission and fusion. So fission is what currently we use for nuclear power in a uranium-type device where we're splitting the nucleus of the atom to release energy. Whereas fusion is the same process that occurs in the sun, and that's where we're taking really light elements, 
like hydrogen. And so if we combine two hydrogens, we form a helium. And in the process, we release a large amount of energy. Fusion has a number of advantages then over traditional fission because we're using these light um, elements that everyone's familiar with, such as hydrogen and helium. There's no long-lived radioactive waste. Also, say in water, it's really abundant. It's H2O, it's two hydrogens in every molecule. So there's heaps of this fuel and the reaction so has a really high energy density. So it's virtually, it's not strictly a renewable energy source, but the fuel's so abundant that it could fuel um, power for billions of years here on Earth. So it's a clean energy source as well. There's no carbon dioxide released in the um, reaction and it's also, it's not susceptible to a nuclear meltdown because it's not a chain reaction process. Alex Thorman is not the only one getting excited about nuclear fusion. Fusion as an idea has been around for decades, but up until recently not a lot of progress had been made. However, a surge of investment from Silicon Valley and a few of the usual tech visionaries are pushing the technology forward. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos has invested in a Canadian company called General Fusion. PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel has invested in Helion Energy. And Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen has poured his money into Tri-Alpha Energy. The clean fusion technology that we're developing here at Tri-Alpha Energy truly has the potential to change the world. Tri-Alpha Energy has raised more than 500 million US dollars and has been working with none other than Google to use an algorithm to solve some of the issues with actually making fusion work. And one of the reasons fusion is so challenging is the need to hold this reaction in a state of plasma, a reaction that needs to be significantly hotter than the sun. The temperature in the middle of the sun is about 10 million degrees, but the sun's really big and really dense, so there's only, only a small sort of reaction rate is required on the sun to make still a lot of energy, whereas here on Earth, we're much more limited with space and building a device sort of the bigger you make it, the more expensive it is. So size is a real limitation. And so we need to have temperatures hotter than the sun. So about 10 times hotter than the center of the sun, 100 million degrees is sort of the optimal temperature for this reaction to have the highest reaction rate. Wow. That's 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 pretty warm. Like how 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 do you even how do you how do you even contain contain that on Earth? Right. So there's two two main streams of trying to contain this really hot thing. So the main main way that's being researched and what we're looking into is magnetic confinement fusion. So this is where we use really strong magnetic fields. Um, bent in a, into a device that's a donut kind of shape and the magnetic fields effectively confine the hot fuel. So at the centre of the device, it's, say, 10 times hotter than the centre of the sun, but as you work your way outwards towards the wall of your device, it's sort of much, much cooler, so it's not melting the edges of your device. And so with really strong magnetic fields, you can sort of get a sharp temperature gradient across a few metres. So when I say it's, it's hotter than the temperature of the sun, it's not hotter than the temperature of the sun at the edge of the device, but in the centre, it certainly is. Right. It's all, it's all about the sort of like the core of 
of the reaction as opposed to what's happening on the fringes. Yeah, so the you want it to have it optimally hot in the middle and then then there's still it's really challenging at the walls of the machine. You've got to make sure you're not going to melt anything, um, and especially with it's really unstable or there are many instabilities that exist in these devices. So that's one of the key challenges to try to... Um, understand and control these instabilities so that you're not actually going to melt your device um, that the reaction's occurring inside. Are there, are there any risks associated with, tr- with trying to, to build something that's burning at 100 million degrees? Um, so the density of the fuel inside is really low. So say if there was um, a, a leak in your device, as soon as something that's really hot begins expanding it cools down rapidly and so then as soon as it cools down the reaction stops so that's why it's inherently safe from things like um, a, a nuclear meltdown. Fusion is an idea that has such a large potential to impact the future of energy that many countries are now involved in building a large fusion experiment. ITER, I-T-E-R, is a project involving 35 countries with the goal of building the world's largest tokamak reactor. Tokamaks are what these fusion reactors are called. Think of ITER as being like the Hadron Collider, but for energy production. The ITER reactor is currently being built in France, and it's set to be operational by around 2025. The system is expected to produce 500 megawatts of energy from an input of just 50 megawatts, which is a tenfold increase. But the goal of the system is actually to produce net energy from the fusion reaction. This is a crucial point, because despite decades of research, and although many of the fusion projects are highly ambitious and they have a lot of funding, at the moment none of the reactors have actually produced more energy output than the energy required to make the fusion reactions happen. So at the moment, the current record, so there's fusion reactors, test reactors around the world, so there's a large one in the in England, and it currently holds the record of being able to produce 70%. So to heat up the plasma in the first place, it requires a lot of energy, and you inject um, high-energy electromagnetic waves and particle beams in to heat up the fuel in the first place. But then this is taking a lot of energy, but at the same time, the amount of energy getting out of the reaction at the moment is only 70% of the energy that you're putting in to heat it up at the first in the first place in in the leading device in, in the world the the real difference between ITER this new device and the existing device is that it's basically um, a factor of 10 bigger than existing advi- devices so that's why it's able to produce the larger larger fusion power output is because if you've got a larger machine, you can confine your hot fuel across a larger distance and more volume equals more, more power because you've got more fuel in there in the first place. Given the huge potential for fusion, you would think that everyone would be on board with the idea of pumping their energy grids with clean electricity generated from fusional reactors. But Ariel Liebman says that when compared to renewable technologies like solar or wind power, especially in countries like Australia, fusion may not actually be the best or even a viable choice. It's hugely expensive, and to be honest, from a from a uh, 
renewable energy or rather, you know, zero emissions point of view, I, I think it's kind of missed the boat, to be honest. You know, it's a really hard thing to get working. And I, I don't think it's going to um, be as, uh, as um, you know, prominent in their future thinking as it used to be because of, our, you know, renewable technologies. I mean, it was really there to replace um, coal. Right, you know, in the way that nuclear fission wasn't because it generated so much um, reactive, um, radioactive uh, waste, and also the risk of some of that material being very useful for nuclear weapons. Fusion, uh, pure fusion reactors can't do that, and that's why they were attractive, you know, 50 years ago. And um, but I think it's kind of you know had its day. Maybe it will, it'll be useful. Well, it will be useful longer term for. Um, uh, some nice applications on Earth and probably for space travel, in fact. Fusion's always the running joke is that it's always 50 years in the future. This is Alex Thorman again. So if you ask the scientists back in 19, 1970 or something like that, they would have predicted that fusion would exist now. Um, and today, at the sort of people's most optimistic predictions would say that 2050 is the time that this may start coming into reality. When you compare with the renewables that are available now and are, uh, um, are more capable of reducing our emissions, I think that's the, as fusion is the ultimate energy source and in 2100 it will allow us to do new technology such as that would allow us to realise all sorts of different technologies that we can't think of at the moment and you could have a nuclear fusion powered spaceship or something like this um, that is just because it's so efficient, the reaction, then you could realise all these different things. Um, it's not just about the clean energy aspect when we're starting to hit these future sort of dates, I guess. So you're thinking of it more as like this could dramatically change the way that we power all kinds of devices and products and technologies. Right, yeah. So, yeah, I think to address carbon dioxide emissions... It's, I think renewables will have picked up a lot of the slack in the meantime until fusion becomes a reality and it's really a question of what mix will there be with fusion and renewables and, and what else will fusion deliver us in terms of other capabilities. If you've loved this episode of Moonshot, then quickly hit the share button and share it with all your friends. It's really the best way of helping us grow the Moonshot community. You can also visit our website, which is moonshot.audio, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to search for Moonshot Pod. Our cover artwork is by Andrew Millist. And our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media. I'm Christopher Lawson. And I'm Andrew Moon. Join us next time for another journey into the future with Moonshot. Moonshot.